Well, yeah, it's always nice. I'm, I'm really, uh, um, I feel privileged to give this uh, talk to you guys because you guys are really on the front lines right now. Um, and and uh, you guys have to be a lot smarter than me because I have a lot of, uh, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm seeing patients, I have a lot of tools at my disposal that you guys just don't have. And, and so... Um, so, uh, you know, I like to, it's actually nice to put myself in your shoes a little bit and try to figure out. Be yes. Yep, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, and it's tough. Like, you guys are in, in tough situations all the time. Um, and I respect that. And without giving this lecture, I don't always kind of realize, I'm like, oh, what were those guys thinking? But actually, like, sometimes uh, you guys are stuck in bad situations and there's not really a right answer. And I realize that. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to talk about sort of common practical things that, you know, because I know you guys have had a lot of physiology lectures already. So I'm sort of just sort of like present some scenarios that might come up that, that, are, that are potentially realistic. Uh, I'm going to try not to talk about this virus at all. Because, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, other than, um, I think for you guys, the most important thing about that is to like make sure you guys are protected. Um, all right, so um, I wonder if this will work. There's a, maybe I'll just uh, hit forward on here. Um, let's see here. Maybe it's down. Oh, I see what's going on here. It's like cranking this, but it's not. It's, oh, it's working there, but not on the other See if that does anything. Oh, where did that do? Oh, it moved now. Oh. Are you supposed to just, was it delayed? Oh, there we go. It's just delayed, maybe. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, so, yeah, so I'm just going to review sort of like common things that might come up when you guys are in the field. Are you guys, have you, so you guys are all, you know, going to be paramedics, right? Uh, Paramedic students. Paramedic students, right? All EMTs. You guys are all EMTs and you're paramedic students, right? So you guys have been out in the field before and, and dealt with stuff. So, so some of this stuff might, you, might sound really familiar. I guess the, the first thing uh, I just want to talk about is just basic pulmonary physiology. The lungs are kind of simple. You breathe in and you breathe out. <laughs> I, think of, uh, I think of the lungs like a healthy lung, like a balloon. A little bit. When you're filling up that balloon, you got to overcome the resistance of the neck, uh, which in some people is not that big a deal, and in some people is a big deal, and you got to sort of pop open that neck. And then you got to fill that balloon up with air. And most of the work of breathing is uh, occurs with inflation, inflating that balloon. Now, the problem is, in, the disease, in, in, in normal states, that's not that bad, right? You fill up a balloon with air. And, and, and abnormal states, lungs don't always work like a balloon. Uh, in certain lung diseases, especially diseases like COPD, uh, that balloon loses its elasticity, right? So um, now you, you know, you're faced with a balloon that... that so, so remember when you breathe in, that balloon fills up with air. But now we have more than just a balloon. In some lung diseases, that balloon becomes like a beach ball. So you fill up a beach ball with air and you let go. The air doesn't come out, right? It just stays in there. 
You, if you, and that happens in some lung diseases. And so it t- takes a lot. So what happens to respond to that? So how do, how do people with COPD or obstructive lung disease respond to, uh, respond to this like inelasticity of their lungs? You, more like, muscle use. Well, well, more muscle use, but but over time, what they do is they, they make that they, they make that beach ball as big as possible, right? Which takes more work, right? And and one of the things that we can help, uh, you know, believe it or not, to help them get air out is actually to to stretch that balloon out a little bit more um, using uh, positive airway pressure, and that's sort of a one important concept, and that allows that that balloon to have a little more recoil. Does that make sense? Or that beach ball, even if you fill up a beach ball up, but but I mean, there's certain disease states where you wouldn't want to do that, right? There's one that sort of comes to mind um, in particular uh, where you really wouldn't wouldn't want to use almost other situation you want to use positive pressure. But there's one situation where you if a uh, you know so what's the risk of getting a balloon overinflated? Pop, right? So so that, you know you, if, if a patient if a patient's got a pop balloon, you want to be really careful about positive pressure. Does that make sense? But almost, a lot of other scenarios actually is very helpful to have, uh, have positive pressure. I know that's one of your, the tools that you guys have, and, and I think in general it's a really good tool. So let's talk about some cases. So, so these are sort of the common emergencies. I'm not going to probably talk about all of these, um, but I'll certainly talk about the ones I think you guys are most likely to, uh, to face. Um, yeah. Uh, so I'm just going to start talking about them. Uh, so first of all, you have a 32-year-old. He's uh, found down. <laughs> so you, you, they don't have this place anymore, the Aloha, Aloha Motel. <laughs> but it used to be, when I first moved here six years ago, uh, we'd get a lot of patients in the ICU from this place. Um, and, uh, huh? They just changed Yeah, it's a Sanish, yep. They just moved across. Where, where is it now? Like, Yep. I love it because I live like just down the street from these places. <laughs> That's Bellingham, right? So, so this this patient comes in and uh, they're you know they're they're afebrile, but they're they're tacky. Their their respirations are really low. You know they hardly have any work of breathing, and they're pretty they're pretty uh, unarousable, and the you know they're hypotensive, look pretty horrible. Uh, you know, their bowel sounds are hypoactive, and then you, you look at their arm and it looks like that. So what do you guys think is going on, right? I mean, this is, yeah, narcotic overdose, right. So, they're, they're, so the first thing is, uh, is someone's difficult to bag. So what are your tools when you have, have a hand when someone's difficult to bag? NPA, NPA. What, uh, oral pharyngeal yeah, per- airway. Yep, perfect, yep, oral pharyngeal airway. When do you think about... Uh, um, uh, Oral pharyngeal airway versus nasal airway. Do you guys have a, a, a way you guys think about that? Or? Yeah, right. So, like, which one would you use for someone who has, like, very very comatose versus, like, maybe someone who's just a little bit drunk and, and just has a little bit of airway obstruction? What would, would you pick? Second a, one gets a nasal. Huh? Second one gets a nasal. Like a nasal, if they're more awake, yeah, yeah. So, they have, so yeah, if you, if, you, if you put an oral airway in someone who's, who's, uh, who has a gag, they'll start, they'll be really uncomfortable. But, yeah, so oral airway... Or nasal airway. Um, so yeah, so yeah, so yes, exactly. So which of these are really helpful for this situation? Um, which one is not helpful? Yeah, so, so yeah, so jaw thrust, oral or nasal, 
and then examine the RA, and what's really not going to be that helpful in this situation <laughs> of uterol, right? I mean, they're already tacky, and you know that's one of the tools that you guys have, but in this situation, really not that helpful. But I, that's glad. I'm very glad you guys mentioned this airway because that's actually look. One of the first things, like an oral airway is actually really helpful because you'll actually look in the mouth too, right, if you're thinking about it. And uh, you'll, you'll, you'll bypass obstruction. Remember the first thing I said, like it's like a balloon and the neck, the neck of the balloon, if it's, uh, if it's collapsed, you're going to have problems. You're going to be able to fill up that balloon, right? Um, so great. So you got that. Now, um, now you move on, right? So you gave, uh, you gave the patient some Narcan and they perked up a little bit. And then you're, you're, you guys are bringing them in, and they start to get more somnolent again. So what's going on here? More Narcan. Narcan, Narcan, Narcan. Yeah, so why more Narcan? Why don't we just intubate them? Uh, because how much opioid they have in their system overcame what Narcan we did give. We saw a good response. There's, it's a wide therapeutic index. Give them more Narcan. Yeah, give them more Narcan. Uh, yeah, and, and the way I think about that too is the, the half-life of most narcotics is longer than the half-life of Narcan, right? So, you, you know, so, you know the, the Narcan worked, but it wore off quicker, right? Because it's, its half-life, you know, it isn't very long. Um, and you can even like, you know, if you know it works, you can even use lower doses than 0.4 if you want to. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to use 0.4, but um, yes, exactly. You guys totally got this right. Um, this is a patient who I probably wouldn't intubate. I'd, yeah, I'd do more Narcan. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I, I, I had a situation where this lady, I admitted her uh, with an opioid withdrawal, and they intubated her uh, in the ER. And so I was a little, you know, I was a little, you know, I was like, okay, well, she's already tubed, right? So um, I wasn't too worried about her. I get, she came up to the ICU, and then she arrested, and we went to this code, and she was not recovering. Like, you know, we gave her Epi, nothing was working, and we gave her Narcan, and she totally perked up. And, you know, I don't really know what happened in this situation, but I'm kind of, you know, I think opioids at such a high dose... Like, even if you've intubated them, I think they still deserve a little bit of Narcan. Because I think it actually causes, uh, you know, respiratory failure, but at really high doses can cause cardiac failure too. So even if, if you've treated the respiratory failure with intubation, if that patient starts to get more unstable, give them Narcan too. You're ventilating them, but still give them a little bit of Narcan because I think it actually helps with the cardiac uh, part of this too. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and a lot of our medics will want to keep someone, just give them just enough Narcan so they're not combative and trying to get out of your yep. medic unit. But not, yeah, but anyway, just enough. Because it is kind of the philosophy. Just but enough, were, yep. But if you would have already intubated someone, then sometimes we forget to add more Narcan uh -huh. to the picture. We may have given it initially, and then they, had, they hadn't worked up right away, so we intubated mm -hmm. and then just failed to give it later. Yeah. So, if they were to get in trouble with the cardiac arrest, I don't yeah. know if a lot of our folks would think to give more Narcan. Yeah, and I, I didn't think of it either. And then the stat nurse, who's like a really, you know, the nurse that comes to all these, it was like, hey, you know, it's not going to hurt anything. And I was like, all right, it's not going to hurt anything. It's a code. And she totally perked up after eating Narcan. This is a cardiac arrest situation. So I was I was really surprised, but it, but, but I, I sort of, that, that sort of, uh, um, that sort of incidence makes me think about it a lot. I, I think my, my sort of reason to give it, if so, so say like you've tubed someone because they, they didn't perk up that much, 
my, my, I'd give it if they had like sort of soft blood pressures and see if you can manage their blood pressures with a little bit of Narcan. And you might find that it like works really well. Um, but it doesn't just cause, my point here is, it is high dose opioids just don't, don't cause just respiratory failure. They actually have direct cardiac effects too. Anyone who gives like, you know, fentanyl for procedures will note that right away. It makes people hypotensive, right? Um, at, at high doses, it, it's, a, it's also cardiac uh, um, sort of depressant as well as a respiratory depressant. But it, you have to have high enough doses, which often occurs in these situations. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so, so I added this in, in um, compared to last time. Uh, so, well, I, this case is like really clinical, so I put as many clinical clues in there as I could. So, you, it's, it's the winter, it's January, it's a cold day, and uh, you have the 62-year-old guy, and his neighbors call because they asked it, to, they were in the RV park, uh, in the Forks and got it, and, and the neighbor calls in because they said, hey, I went to go borrow something from my neighbor and they're just acting really funny like just kind of uh not their normal self um and so you get you, you get called in for basically like an altered mental status call and check and you walk in and it just doesn't smell right in there and the neighbor also tells you that it was really cold and the guy's rv heater wasn't working so he lent them a portable gas-powered heater um so you get there and by this time the guy is kind of somnolent his vital signs actually look okay, and you put a pulse ox on him, and it's fine. It's reading like 100%. And, uh, um, but the guy doesn't look quite right. You know, his lungs are clear, but he looks a little bit... Um, you know, his, I've never... Actually, honestly, I'll, I'm going to be quite honest. I've never seen anyone with cherry red lips, but it's the kind of thing that if you see it on a test, um, you should be thinking about this. So, so what are you guys thinking right now about? Yeah, really good. Yep. So, like, you know, always think about that in the winter, and people who are um, confused. You know, the other thing, the other sort of clue, not in this case, but if you have kids in the house, if kids are acting stranger than adults, because kids tend to, especially younger kids, tend to be affected first. They're kind of the canaries in the coal mine a little bit. Uh, remember, it doesn't smell like anything, right? Um, and so it can be really tricky. Uh, in this situation, uh, you know, this portable gas-powered heater is sort of a big clue uh, in the, guy, guy, the way the guy is acting. So, so what is the, what's the mechanism that carbon monoxide causes people to, you know, have problems with their thought? Thought process and thinking. Yep, it binds to hemoglobin, and and then so so that's really good. So it binds to hemoglobin with like two hundred times more affinity than um, than oxygen does. So specifically, it's binding the cytochrome uh, molecule in the in the hemoglobin. And cytochromes are not just in hemoglobin, they're also in, uh, do you know, like, what, what really important cellular organelle cytochromes are? So, so mitochondria, right? So, uh, so that's actually, you know, one of the reasons why people have, you know, you, you, you have to, like, not, you treat them with a lot of oxygen for a long time. Because even after you get all, you outcompete all the, um, uh, all the carbon monoxide from their hemoglobin molecules, it takes a lot longer to outcompete it from all the mitochondria. And that's sort of the rationale for a long time for hyperbaric oxygen. And now they're trying some other stuff too, which is sort of being tested, um, which isn't super important for us to know about right now. But um, basically hyperventilation using 
uh, carbon dioxide to prevent. Uh, have you heard about this? Yes. Yeah, so so hyper, hyperbaric oxygen was sort of like something that we'd use for people with really horrible neurologic sequelae from, from this. So, so really, carbon monoxide poisoning in the acute phase, you treat it, but a lot of, a lot of times, like 3 to 10% of times, if people's level, level's high enough, high enough, they can get these delayed neurologic sequelae that don't ever really ever, kind of like an anoxic brain injury, and that's because the mitochondria get so affected, so they, they, they get decreased perfusion to their, you know, decreased energy production in their brain, and they can have long-term long sequelae from that. And so we, we really hyperoxygenate them for a while. Hyperbaric oxygen is a great way to do that. Something that's being studied a lot right now is hyperventilation. What, what that causes, right, is, uh, is when you hyperventilate someone, you can cause an alkalosis, right, a respiratory alkalosis, which can be very dangerous. So what, what they're trying to do now is hyperventilate someone, but actually with a little bit of carbon dioxide. And so they don't get as much respiratory, acid, uh, respiratory alkalosis with it, right? But you're able to continually kind of wipe out their oxygen uh, by hyperventilating them. And that's sort of, it's sort of they're looking to see if it's comparable to hyperbaric. Hyperbaric clears the carbon monoxide, but it's, whether or not it prevents the neuro neurologic sequelae has sort of uh, been really controversial for a long time. How about blood transfusion? Is that, is that Gosh. You know, I've never heard of that. Um, that's a really good question. I'll look into that. I, actually, I don't know the answer to that. Have you heard of blood transfusions well, we, for this? Janice, uh, before, yeah. she said that she's heard of it, but I don't yeah. know. I haven't, actually. Um, we were talking uh, about the fact that the, that the uh, CO binds so strongly the red blood cells that you almost have to have some of the red cells die and be replaced yeah. before you can actually yeah. truly treat the problem. But Yeah, I mean... I, I find like oftentimes you find the, the so the CO levels come down, but what, what the problem is the patients still aren't acting right, and that's because they're mitochondria, uh, which are you know uh, you know in every cell and brain cells are still that CO is still bound there, and so that that's sort of the, the problem you know it's binding to the cytochrome, uh, and the mitochondria, which is required you know to make ATP, ATP and so their the ATP production is low. So why was the SATs 100 percent? Yeah, I can't tell the difference, right? Yeah, so, so I, I don't have a pulse oximeter that can tell the difference. They, they're, they're, they're making them, but I don't know how accurate those are, honestly. I don't know they're how well-validated are, yeah. We're not sure how accurate they are either, although yeah. our, our heart monitors do have the ability to tell the difference, and they will give us a percentage. Oh, that's awesome. Anything over 10% of the for CO. Yes, okay. it'll give us an alarm, it'll, and sometimes it's wrong. There, yeah. Later it doesn't show up again. Yeah. Initially, you first put it on, it'll show. And then we also do some investigating to figure out if they have, you know, gas heat or is there any reason they would have right. that? And there's no reason at all. They're not a smoker. They don't have anything. So we just assume occasionally we get a, a funny reading from it. But um, but it's supposed to be accurate. If it does sense and it's not, you know, take it on off yeah. the finger, it still continues to give you the reading. It's likely accurate, I guess. Okay. Yeah. That's so... so um... I'd say pulse oximetry isn't super useful. History, you know, this situation is everything. Um, but but uh, co-oximetry or blood gas is usually what we do in the hospital to like sort of sort it out, and that gives you you have to do a blood gas, and uh, it tells you you know how much is uh, you know carboxyhemoglobin, methemoglobin, and uh, oxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin. Uh, but the treatment is, you know, oxygen, 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 oxygen. And, and hyperbaric's one tool. You know, we've intubated patients and hyper, 
hyperventilation is sort of a new thing that's being studied. Um, uh, yeah. Would you recommend it if we if we suspect significant CO two in the like a CPAP over a BBM or uh, not not necessarily. I mean, my indication to intubate someone in this situation or use or use pressure is if like they're not having uh, if they're not if they're too sleepy to get enough. But I wouldn't necessarily if, uh, if their worker breathing isn't high. I wouldn't necessarily uh, use a CPAP. You, you could just use. Uh, I'd use a non-rebreather. Yep. Um, I, I would use a C. Yeah. In, 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 the, in the field, I'd just use a non-rebreather if they're awake enough to breathe on their own. Often, sometimes they're too comatose. Like the guy that we we heard here. I mean, if you intubated him when you saw him, that wouldn't be wrong. He's he's low. His GCS is low, and I mean that's the fastest way to get a bunch a bunch of oxygen into someone is just intubate them. You know, the 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 ones. <laughs> One overdose that I don't, I'm, I'm really nervous about intubating, and I, I guess, but I'm not, I'm not gonna, this isn't one I'm gonna, I'm talking about, it's one of my things, but since he brought it up, the one, one overdose that I get really nervous about intubating, and I, um, but I've, I've seen you guys intubate and the patients do just fine, <laughs> just when I think about it a lot, I get really nervous about it. Do you guys know which overdose is like, uh, you know, that is, you should be really careful about intubating? Aspirin. Aspirin, man, you guys are great, wow. And why is that? Yeah, it's hard to match. And then the other uh, issue with it is is uh, um, that that period when you're intubating them is super high risk, right? Because you're stopping their ventilation for a little while, and, and then they can really have problems during that period. Um, so yeah, that's really great. Yeah, aspirin overdoses are super risky intubations, but I've seen the, I've seen them intubated by you guys in the field, and they do just fine. So. So uh, and then, but but uh, but I get really nervous, and and when I'm intubating them, make sure. I mean, I get intubation is probably for for intensive care. It's probably the most dangerous procedure that we do up there in the ICU. So I take every intubation super seriously, and you know, make sure we do a timeout. We have at least another RT there that can help us. It's always good to have another pair of hands, uh, and make sure I have not just all the tools that I need that I normally use. But also all my backup tools available too, which you guys are all going to have, right? You know, so like my my LMA if I can't get it, I'm sure you guys are, you know, my my you know my glide scope if I need it, um, and you know my Frova catheters or bougies in case I need those. I have everything available in case it's going to be really hard, because you never know. Do yeah. You, is your first line method direct? Oh uh, yeah, unfortunately it is, because because I'm like that's how I was trained. <laughs> But uh, but that's not that's that's my personal preference. Uh, that's not really based on on data. Um, but yeah, if I usually use a um, a Mac four for most people. But the other thing that that's sort of uh, uh, our our new glide scopes that we have in the hospital uh, work just like a Mac, honestly. So you can actually look, or you can look at the screen depending on how, what you want to do. Now, a lot of us have noticed that the anesthesiologists up there we've been working with. Before seem to prefer to want to go direct, uh, whereas we're trying to practice more with the gliscope. Yeah. It's, there, use in the field. You, you know, um, I, I'd say uh, there's a couple advantages to doing stuff with direct laryngoscopy, but they're not that important. Uh, I, I think um, the one advantage to direct laryngoscopy that I find is if someone's throwing up 
or if someone has a lot of uh, uh, bloody secretions, I find with uh, fiber optic uh, intubation, sometimes like what happens if you're, if you're, so if you're gonna do it that way, right, which is fine, just be really prepared, uh, have your suction ready, right? When you go in, if you see a lot of blood, uh, you know, suck it out, but your fiber optic scope's gonna get dirty. Be ready to pull it out and have it have have like a cloth or a, a wet four by four available before you even use it to just wipe it off or have a friend maybe have you like hey you know your responsibility is to clean off this when I pull it out you know because you know so so just like work as a team like so that, that I mean that that's actually I think uh, um, there was a French study um, published about a year ago that suggested that direct laryngoscopy is slightly faster than fiber optic intubation. Um, but you, one of the problems with that study um, was they used a type of system for fiber optic intubation that isn't really used here. It wasn't, wasn't GlideScope, it was a different thing. Uh, it's kind of like a handheld thing with the screen on the top. And they also didn't use um, uh, stylets, which is really odd. That was just their protocol in France. They intubate people without stylets, which is kind of odd. Um, which, you know, without a stylet, you know, you, you, you know, it's nice to have a stylet that guides you through the glide scope thing. If you don't have that, uh, it's a lot harder to get it to go where you want it to go. Um, so yeah, um, I think, uh, I, 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 I use DLs mostly just cause I'm used to it and that's what I do. But if, if I, if someone looks like they're going to be really hard, um, I do like fiber optic intubation a lot. The other thing that I try not to do if someone's gonna, if I predict someone, if I look at them and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's like, you know, I can, I can hardly see, I can't see any uvula when I open his mouth, you know, you know the pe the people that really worry me, uh, by the way, aren't the big the big dudes, the big dudes are usually fine. It's the short women, <laughs> they're very challenging because short women, uh, you know, they're. Short women, they tend to have uh, really d tough anatomy. And then pregnant women, oh my gosh. Pregnant women are just, you know, everyone, every intubation I've had that's been challenging, it's been a woman and a short woman. Short woman or a pregnant woman. <laughs> like those people are the ones that I think are really tough. So, so I, I think it's just because there's not as much room back there, you know. And uh, um, what was I going to say about this? Uh, yeah, so, so if I predict them to be hard, so like what do you... So, so um, you guys have probably been through this a lot, right, Rob, about talking about like difficult airways and how to predict a difficult airway? We have gone through that, yeah, but we still have very little experience. Yeah. That, right? So how to predict a difficult airway. So, um, so mouth opening, right? So, right? so if they can't open their mouth, you're like, uh-oh, that's not good. Um, what else do you guys think about? There's really about three things that I use. Yeah, so mom potty, so yeah, what's, uh, so, so thyromental distance, right? So three fingers here, right, from your, your uh, thyroid to your chin, right? And then two or three fingers in the mouth is nice, right? And they open it, and what's mom potty, what's that about? So when they open their mouth and Yeah, so, so yeah, so like how much can you see back there, right? So opening your mouth, uh, when you say, ah, oh, it's like a, considered a, a modified malampati, but everyone says, say, ah, uh, you know, how many times in the ICU or in you guys in the field, you're intubating, you can ask them to open your mouth. Right. Like, good luck, right? <laughs> and I, I have the advantage sometimes of having an old anesthesiology record in the hospital I can look at, but I almost always do that too. So, like, if I'm intubating someone in the hospital, I almost always look, hey, have they been tubed for surgery before? Have they been tubed by one of us before? Is there a note that says, hey, did it go smoothly or no, it was, like, really tough. 
So even if I can't open up someone's mouth, I'd look to see if they've been tubed before. That's pretty helpful. That's something you can actually ask if there's any bystanders say, hey, has this guy ever been tubed before? It was hard, was it easy? You know, you can, you can ask stuff like that. It also helps you prognosticate. If you have a COPD ear and he's been tubed before and he's not looking good, you might just want to tube him, right? Because his prognosis isn't super good either way. And kind of along that line, will you have access to EM, uh, past EMS records on innovations? Somebody, somebody who... I don't, I don't have access to past EMS records, actually. Yeah. spoke to us, I think, mentioned... I don't think I... note in there about the, how the intubation went for future intubations in the hospital. I, I don't know. Like, uh, I find EMS records, especially with Epic, are really hard to find. Um, Maybe we should talk about the, scanning those in. If yeah, if you guys are tubing people and and and, uh, and especially if they're difficult, that's really helpful to know. Not not just for the future, but even when we're working on extubating them, I I'm more careful about extubating people uh, when I know they were hard to intubate. I'm like you know you know extubate them during regular business hours, not in the middle of the night. You know, make sure that I uh, call anesthesiology ahead of time sometimes and be like, hey, this guy was really hard to tube. He's passing all the tests to extubate, right? Um, but are you around just in case? <laughs> you know? Uh, because, you know, I'm pretty good at it, but they're even better than me, the anesthesiologists. I'm not going to, like, pretend I'm the best at this. Um, they're, they're even better than we are. Um, so... Um, so malampati, so what is that about, though? So uh, what are you looking for in the malampati? What do you want to see? What's great? What's like, oh, yes, I see it. I'm good to go. You see the uvula. Yeah, uvula. Over the tongue. Yeah. So if you see the uvula, that's one. That's pretty good. If you see part of the uvula, that's two. If you see soft palate, three. Just hard palate, four. Um, that's, that's how I think about it. Um, so we talked about. So we talked about three of the four things that I think are important. So... Thyromental distance, mouth opening, malampati, and what's the fourth thing? Yeah, motion. So yeah, so so you, if they can't, if they, so like the people who've had neck fusions or rheumatoid arthritis, and they just have a lot of arthritis in their neck, and they can't give you a good jaw thrust, right? They might be difficult to uh, to sort of get a good view, right? Now with uh, with glide scopes, that's not a, as important. With DL, that's really important to position them well. And uh, the best way to position someone for intubation is something called, I think, is something called a sniffing position, right? Just think about when you're going out and you're, right? So that's, that's sort of how, how you want to um, think about it. Just uh, have their, have their um, just think about if you're sniffing something. So, you're, so a little bit of jaw thrust is really helpful. And sometimes for really difficult people, having someone help you with jaw thrust can be really helpful too. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Um, so now, uh, do you guys know what the emperor of maladies is? <laughs> the, um, so you have a 72 year old with COPD. 911 calls calls because uh, you know he's uh, he's got shortness of breath and respiratory failure. You walk in his house, it smells like smoke. <laughs> My clinic smells like smoke a lot too. <laughs> so so uh, the patient's uh, sitting up. They're short of breath. They also complain of right-sided uh, chest pain. They're cachectic. That's more than just being skinny, right? Cachectic means like you know you can see divots in their forehead. Uh, you know they have abnormal, uh, almost abnormal fat deposition. It's it's really um, it's more than just saying someone's skinny. Um, what's that on his hands? What's what's going on there? 
Clubbing, yeah, really good. Um, and, and can anyone kind of tell me what clubbing is exactly? And what kind of diseases give you clubbing? Hypoxia. Yeah, chronic hypoxia, shunting, specifically hypoxia from shunting, which most diseases that give you hypoxia, even lung disease gives you shunting. Shunting, and then, and then things like, uh, so, so lung disease is like, you can get it with COPD. COPD alone, it's pretty rare. Uh, you, we see it a lot more with diseases like interstitial lung disease. And then, uh, you know, lung cancer, right? So uh, it can be a sign of lung cancer as well. Um, and what it is, what is it? So um, if you look at the nail bed normally, uh, it should... Um, uh, so so norm, the normal nail bed, so this is like, uh, you know, someone's finger. The normal nail bed, uh, the angle here, this angle right here, should be like, uh, you know, less than 180 degrees. And, and clubbing is just when someone has a nail bed that kind of goes down like this, so that, that angle is greater than 180 degrees. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, this guy, his, his nails are kind of kind of going down. Um, so something's wrong with him. It's funny, so, sometimes patients will be like, hey, my nails have started doing that for the past year. And oftentimes this happens so slowly, though, people will be like, hey, my nails have looked like that since I was born. And you're like, I don't think they've looked like that since you were born, but okay. Um, so listen, so this guy has decreased breast sounds on the right. And his trachea is midline. So what are the different things that could be going on with this guy? He's, you know, he's got clubbing, so you think of like lung disease, cancer, right? And uh, he's got pain on the right side and having trouble breathing. So maybe a pneumo, yeah. Maybe you could have a pneumonia. Maybe you could have a, you could have a PE, yeah, yeah. Uh, although um, the PE wouldn't necessarily give you decreased breath sounds on the right, right? Um, say say he told you his shortness of breath happened over a couple weeks. Uh, what do you think about a, a guy who might have cancer and his shortness of breath goes over, increases over a couple weeks, huh? Infection. Infection, yeah, and the other thing that happens in some of these uh, cancer patients, particularly in lung cancer, is they get um, a big pleural effusions sometimes too, uh, metastatic effusions. So, so um, in the field, oh my God, I don't know why I put that picture in there. I think I Googled like COPD and uh, that's one of the pictures that came up and I thought it was very funny. <laughs> so I put it on there. I don't know where that, what that's about. So, 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 so you have uh, you have decreased breast sounds on the right on this guy. So, so when I hear that, it's like, is that uh, pneumonia doesn't typically give you decreased breast sounds, right? Pneumonia actually, if anything, sometimes the breast sounds are louder. You know, you hear the wrong guy, right? Um, but what kind of situations give you decreased breast sounds? So that means there, there's no air going there. So, yes, right. So, so fluid or uh, or air, right? Or, or pneumothorax, yeah. So in the field, how do you differentiate that? It's pretty tricky. I mean, in the hospital, it's easy. I just do that, right? And I, I put an ultrasound probe on their lungs. I don't even send them for an x-ray, right? Uh, and like modern, modern, like 2020 medicine, an ultrasound is like your first go-to thing for any kind of situation like this in the hospital before I would even get an x-ray. Because it's at the bedside, and if someone's really sick, I can know right away at the bedside if there's a problem. I don't need to wait for the x-ray tech to come here, right? And there's, uh, 
But so what, do you, what can you do? Because you guys don't, don't have this. What can you do at the bedside to kind of figure it out? You guys, you know, I bet you, like, in the next 10 years, you guys probably will have ultrasounds um, because they're becoming more, less expensive and more readily available. And, and honestly, it's a lot easier to teach someone how to use an ultrasound machine than it is to teach someone how to do a physical, physical exam sometimes. <laughs> because I, I think because, because humans are naturally a visual people. Like, we're not... We're not as good at auditory uh, or, I mean, we, we're way better. It, you know, if, if you read a book versus if you listen to a book, you're going um, to get a lot more out of it if you read it, right? I, I mean, uh, and pictures are a lot, tell a lot. So I think uh, it's just, I, I found this with medical students, man, like trying to teach them how to use a stethoscope is really hard. But if you give them an ultrasound machine, they're like, oh, I get it. I can see it, right? Um, so ultrasound, I which, listen again. So how can you tell the difference by, what else can you do in the field to kind of figure out whether someone's got air in there or, um, or if it's a bunch of fluid? You can feel for crepitus, that's great, yeah. So what's crepitus? Yeah, sub-QR, so you, you push on it and it's kind of like, uh, it feels like bubble. Puffy. Yeah, puffy, yep, Mary's Krispies. What else can you do? You can do percussion, and if it yeah. sounds tight like a drum, it's probably a tension nuo. Mm -hmm. If it's dull, it's probably blood or fluid. Yep. Yeah. So that's right. So you, um, so you, you, know, you put your hand on there and you, you start hitting on their back, right? And if it's dull, there's fluid in there. If it's if it's uh, um, if it's uh, if it's dull, right? That suggests there's, there's fluid. And and I usually do both sides, right? Uh, you know, because then you can like sort of say oh, this side feels normal. You know, even the side that you can hear, hear air going through, I do that side and compare it to the other one, right? It's helpful because then you can kind of like in, this, in, the, in the moment kind of feel the difference. Um, yeah, so if it's hollow, right, then it's going to be more likely to be air. And if it's dull, it'll be fluid. Yeah, hey. Can you walk us through the percussion process? I'm not familiar. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, sure. Yep, uh, yeah. If you have a volunteer, yeah, sure. So... So yeah, so, so the first thing uh, I do is, you know, I listen to him and say he's, he's, you know, he doesn't have really good breath sounds on this side and he has good breath sounds on this side, right? So, so I still percuss on both sides. And what I do, everyone, you, you can actually even use a reflex hammer, but I, I just use my, my thumb and I, I do, I kind of do this with two fingers right over this knuckle. And I do it on both sides. And what you, the other thing, And it obviously take take someone's shirt off to do this. You may pop it off though. No, 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 no it's okay. I mean, I'm, you guys, you guys kind of get the idea, right? Yeah, yeah. See, over time, you learn what sounds and feels normal. You you hear, and yeah, and that's part of the reason why you want to do both the right side and the left side in, in, in a situation like this, because this, the the side that is normal, you have it right there, right? I mean, you have the normal side. It's like your. Thanks a lot for being a volunteer. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, I was like, oh dear, I, I, uh, I, heard, I heard him, or? <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's right, yeah, that's right, he's like, oh man, that guy touched me, uh, yeah, no, I... Doc, do you ever use, like, I'm going to slaughter this term, and I might even do Egophony? Egophony, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you do, uh, you, you could, yeah, egophony, um, you know, they, they say to say 99, 
Maybe you heard of that, about that. Yeah, yeah. You know that that comes from uh, that comes from like the German uh, German translation because ger- in, in German, like uh, my understanding was ninety nine is has a lot of O sounds in German, like noinzi, noinzi has that sort of O sound. So you're better off. I always learned in medical school you're better off saying something like toy boat, uh, something with a lot of long O sounds in it. Um, and what you get uh, in egophony is anything that's, uh, if it's, egophony won't help you so much in this situation because there's no lung there, right? Uh, it, it won't tell the difference. And, and same with frematis, right? Frematis requires like air going into lung, right? Um, if you have a consolidation, uh, you get, uh, uh, you know, you actually get m- more, uh, um, of this sort of like uh, egophony when you have them say oh and, and, and you know you can actually um, you can listen or even put your hand on, on their lungs it's very similar to this, the feeling of frematis but you're better off having them say make an O noise like a toy boat the 99 and uh, what you're looking for is it's a good sign of consolidation of lung consolidation the other, the other thing that's really good for lung consolidation is um, uh, sort of like uh, um, uh, um, a type of lung song uh, sound that's not quite wheezing. Uh, it's more uh, deeper pitched and very loud. Um, uh, and, and that can be a sign of a lung consolidation as well. Um, the other thing that often happens with people who have lots of mucus in their lungs uh, it can happen with COPD and asthma too, but it happens a lot more commonly with uh, pneumonias, is they have wheezing that happens, or, or sort of like a wheezing or a crackling sound that happens as they breathe in. Um, and that, that can also be like, you know, when I, when I hear that, I think there's more going on. I'm more likely to see an x-ray with a consolidation than I am to see just an exacerbation of COPD. If, if you hear like crackling, or wheezing with inspiration as well as expiration, uh, I, I, I really um, I worry about uh, a pneumonia. Um, yeah, good questions. Um, all right, so the same guy. Uh, now, um, he's had uh, you know three days of shortness of breath, coughing and wheezing. Uh, um, he hasn't made it to the clinic yet. He called us, but, you know, this happens really commonly, you know, they call us, or one of my, my patients oftentimes, like, uh, I, my, a lot of my patients have COPD and they exacerbate a lot, right? And so I feel that they should have the tools that they need for flare-ups at home. So I say, hey, if you're flaring up, have this antibiotics and prednisone at home and call me and let me know when you're feeling bad and I'll make an appointment, but at least you'll be able to get started on treatment. It's because it's, some of these patients have really, you know, they're flaring up, you know, three times or four times a year. It's really, this is a bad disease. Um, so they started this, but they're still having problems. So, uh, yeah, I want to say this, like, having, having a, so if, if, if one of your patients you pick up and they say, hey, yeah, I see that guy, Jaffer, that's, that's actually, a, you feel, oh, man, I'm worried about this guy. It's usually a bad <laughs> prognostic indicator if someone sees a lung doctor. Doesn't necessarily mean they're. T- it just you know it just means that they you know they have they have a serious disease. Um, so you know this could be anything, right? You know uh, pneumonia, heart failure, 
PE, acute asthma, COPD, it's something that's not responding to therapy, right? Um, so let's talk about this. So this guy, you know, has a lot of, I really like this picture because he's doing a lot of the things. He looks, he looks like a classic patient with this. He has a lot of uh, the classic findings you'll find. So, so what does this guy look like? Oh yeah, so you have a lot of these things on here. So he's wheezing. Looks awful. He's wheezing. He's cachectic. He's, re he's retracting, yeah. So where do you guys look for retracting? Retractions happen here, but you can actually probably see them most up there, right? In his neck. Yep, intercostals, yep. And uh, what else is this guy doing? What's he doing with his hands? Tripod. Yeah, he's tripoding, yep. It looks like he has clubbing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it looks like he's got clubbing really good. And what's paradoxal abdominal breathing? Yeah, so you just put your hand on your stomach, right? My stomach goes out, right, when I breathe. So if you put someone's, you put someone, your hand on someone's stomach while they're breathing, and it's going in when they're breathing, that's a bad sign. They're not going to be able to do that for very long. Um, either you, you, you put them on, so th this, this guy, if he's doing that, this is a situation where, like, so, so CPAP, where, where it really helps, right, is work of breathing, right? What he's trying to do, he's trying to expand his lungs, right? He's got a barrel chest, right? He's trying to, he's trying to expand, his, he's having trouble getting air out, right? So what he's trying to do, he's trying to get his air, his lungs as big as possible. Because that's where, that, you know, exhalation is almost all passive, Right? The work of breathing is mostly with inhalation. And so he's working really hard to make this beach ball that he's got as big as possible so he can breathe, breathe past an obstruction. Yeah? I was going to say, can you speak to ventilator dependence with these patients and what our threshold should be when we're using CPAP and we see someone going downhill? When we should make a decision to innovate or when do we should continue to use CPAP? Um, just get it in. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think... Uh, it, yeah, so like what, when, when to use CPAP and when not to. I mean, I think uh, I'd always try CPAP first, uh, almost every situation. And there's a couple of situations I'll talk about where you wouldn't want to. Um, one's a pneumothorax, right? Uh, we talked about that already. But um, the, the other situation where you, well, we'll, talk, we'll talk about this in a minute. So, so in terms of like uh, how to decide whether CPAP's working or not, I mean... If someone is comatose, is that a contraindication to using CPAP or not, yeah. right? Not, I mean, maybe. I mean, I'd say, like, I would have a much higher threshold to think about intubating someone who's comatose, right? But at the same time, if you can, if, if you know, the reason they're comatose, right, is because their CO2 is really high. And um, what they need is ventilation. When, when you get them, you, you have just CPAP, right? They may actually be able to ventilate better because... Uh, um, because what you've done is you've, in, with that positive pressure, is you're inflating that. You're help, you know, they're they're working really hard to get their beach ball as big as possible. And when you give them some CPAP, you're making, you're helping take away some of that work. And um, the problem is, if someone is so comatose, they're they're not going to really. Um, they, may, they may or may not be able to continue to, to work, right? They're not, they still might not have uh, enough effort, right? Uh, so, so in those situations for you guys, you guys might want to just go straight to intubation. Um, 
But honestly, in the hospital, we almost always try, even in comatose patients, uh, I, I usually try a, a CPAP or BiPAP for at least half an hour to see if their, uh, if their mentation improves. And oftentimes it does. Um, but I, I, I'm using BiPAP a lot, which is, and, and sometimes I even am giving them a rate on the BiPAP. So I'm essentially using a non-invasive ventilator, which is different than just CPAP. Does that make sense? Uh, you, also, you also asked about like uh, people who are um, uh, like long term on the ventilator. Or? Well, I've been told that if we intubate some of these people, they become ventilator dependent. So oh no no we should, we should hang off the intubation. No 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 I don't think that, that I don't think that's true. Okay. Yeah no and and I think that I'll talk about this a little bit. The prognosis of someone who ha who gets intubated. Uh, is very, you know, in the short term, it's a little bit worse than someone who doesn't. Long term, if someone has hypercapnic respiratory failure and they don't get intubated, right, and they get by without it being intubated, but they, they presented with hypercapnic respiratory failure, their prognosis a year from now is very similar to someone who got intubated. It's not that different. They both have a bad prognosis, honestly, uh, a year down the road, and I'll actually show you what I mean about that. But... Yeah, the intubation is not going to make them vent dependent, you know. Um, I, I have patients that, um, you know, some of my patients, not very many, uh, but about a handful, are uh, have have such bad ventilation that they are, you know, these are people who are pretty close to needing a transplant. Either it's not available or, or they're not a good candidate because they're too old or still smoking. Um, but... Um, but intubation itself doesn't make them vent dependent, and it's just a, it's just it's their disease that's it's that's worse, and sometimes they just need it. And oftentimes, where you're seeing them, right, is a flare-up of COPD, right, and and they haven't had any therapy yet, no steroids, no antibiotics, and and, and no, and oftentimes diuretics can help too because they get really edematous and they have some cardiac dysfunction because of right heart failure. And you treat them, and a couple days later, we're, we're able to extubate them. The one, the one other situation where you wouldn't, you'd, I mean, you wouldn't want to intubate someone is, is um, and I'll talk about this in a minute, is you always want to try to at least find out what their wishes are. Mm. And so uh, I try to make an effort for all my patients I see in clinic to fill out this, these post forms. Uh, usually not on the first time I meet them. <laughs> usually I wait until I've, I, I got to know them, you know, like three or four times, and I kind of get an idea of, of, of how... Um, you know, they start to trust me and I start to trust them because I feel like the post form, when I fill that out with them, uh, it, it, uh, it, it takes a little bit of them trusting me to accept my guidance, right? Because uh, when the first time I meet them, I don't want to tell them, hey, you know, I think that you should be, you, you shouldn't want to be intubated. They're not going to really want to, they're not going to be receptive totally to what I'm telling them because they don't really trust me yet. It's the first time I met them. But usually after I meet someone for three or four times, then I start to... In the hospital, it's different. This is in the clinic situation. In the hospital, I, I do talk to them right away, and they're, they're, they're family members. But the reason I'm bringing up these post forms is because I tell all my patients to... I, I, I make a copy of the post form I fill out and put it... Do you guys all know what a post form is? Oh, yeah. Yeah, good. So I, I put a copy of the post form in the chart, but I give them the original, and these are bright green forms. I tell them to put them on their refrigerator. Although I had one, one patient who put it in his refrigerator. And he said, hey, when the, when the, when the EMTs got there, they couldn't find my post form because I, I put it in the fridge just like you told me. I was like, in the fridge? <laughs> 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 I was like, yeah, you put it in the fridge. <laughs> so, uh, but, but, uh, but I tell my patients to put them on the fridge. I, I, I don't know if that's like co common, but I think that most, uh, I, when, I came, when I first moved here, I came here from Iowa and they didn't have a pulse. I didn't have that system and I really like it. 
um, because it gives it gives you guys some guidance too. So always check that first too. Um, we do tell them on the refrigerator, or I've heard the nightstand as well that some doctors say okay. put it in either of those two locations. Take so that, and if they're never in either one of those locations, just you know, they're, yeah, they're not available a lot of times. Yeah, you have to ask someone, and then they go find it. They go find it. Yeah. Yeah, I try to tell them to put it, put this on your fridge. Yeah, but I can imagine like if uh, <laughs> I don't have one on my fridge, <laughs> I can imagine that uh, a lot of people probably don't want that to be like advertised to the rest of the world. You know, yeah, <laughs> we have like guests over. It's on your fridge. <laughs> I mean, so I can imagine. Well, I can see why not everyone want to do that. Um, so you know, what is COPD? I you know I um, I, I I take care of. A lot of patients with asthma, COPD, bronchiectasis, the ultimate, a lot of times the, the end destination for a lot of these people is essentially COPD. It's treated very similarly. similarly. Um, I, I, it's kind of a little bit of a basket, basket diagnosis. Uh, some pulmonologists disagree with me. They think like COPD is COPD. It's very different than asthma. In the acute setting, they're really similar. And same with bronchiectasis. So I kind of pool them all together. I, 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 call the, I call it chronic obstructive pulmonary diseases. Asthmatics sometimes have, when they're doing well, their FEV1 is higher than 80. Do you guys know what an FEV1 is? Okay. Um, FEV1 is the forced expiratory volume in one second. Okay. So um, when we do lung function testing, something called spirometry, right? Which you guys probably fire fire firefighters do spirometry every year, right? Or yeah. yep, to, to to make sure that you guys aren't getting exposed to stuff. You know they have you say they say blow as hard as you can out, right? The reason we want to do that is because people if you have an airway obstruction, right? If you're if you're trying to get air through a small hole, right? It's if you give someone ten seconds to do it, they'll get it through, right? But if it's a small hole and you, you give them only one second to do it, they're going to have a hard time, right? Moving air fast through a small hole is hard. Slowly, they don't have a problem, right? So you want, to you want a test that recognizes problems, right? So that's why you just give them a second. That's all it is. It's as fast as they can blow out in a second. And that's, that first second is what you're paying attention to. Um, less than, so, I, you know... Um, if the, the basically, basically uh, there are percentages for this, but the idea is people blow out more than 70% of the, the total air they're going to blow out in the first second. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, is that the little plastic things a lot of people have with their houses with the tube on it? They're supposed to check it? Yes it and like no. It's like a that they're supposed to blow upwards. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I think you're thinking of an incentive spot. So th there are peak flow meters, um, uh, but... I think what you're talking about is something called an incentive spirometer. It's a little bit different. So, so an incentive spirometer, uh, it, what it does is uh, uh, it's got a little tube, right? And it's got, it looks like a tower, right? So what those are for is, uh, and it's got a little, um, the incentive spirometers have a little marking that says bad, good, and uh, bad again, right? So what they want you to do is to, to suck air in. Uh, nice and slowly for as long as they can. And what that's measuring is uh, in that, that sort of like that, that, as they do that, that balloon sort of comes up and measures the total amount of volume they can breathe in. 
And, and uh, that's actually not a diagnostic test. It's not that helpful, but oftentimes that forced, that, that, that sort of inhala inhalation capacity decreases when they're sick. But, but the most common reason people have those is because they've had a surgery. And lungs don't like to be in bed, first person to be in bed all the time. Your lungs want you to be, taking, to be walking around and taking deep breaths. The problem is when you're in bed all the time, uh, your lungs get something called atelectasis, which means, you know, the lungs are kind of like, um, so I've said that lungs are kind of like balloons, but they're also a little bit like plastic bags, and that um, the, the parts of the lungs in the bottom and the back when you're in bed a lot, they kind of crumble in on themselves, and they don't, they don't see a lot of air unless you're getting up out of bed and walking around. And in cancer patients, we see this all the time. You get a post-obstructive pneumonia. But if you have a part of the lung that's not exposed to breathing all the time, that part of the lung is at high risk for getting pneumonia. So one of the ways that we try to prevent post-operative pneumonias in the hospital is we have people practice deep breathing. And the way we have them practice deep breathing is using this thing called an incentive spirometer. Back in the day, when people watched TV with ads, I used to say, hey, uh, every time there's a commercial on TV, Use your incentive spirometer post-op. That's about six times an hour. <laughs> Maybe more. Now they don't really watch, no one watches TV with Mike. I don't think my kids know what an ad is. Um, so, so I just tell people do it six times an hour. Um, but that's usually what that is. Some patients have something called a peak flow meter, asthmatics. Um, what that measures is the peak flow, but it's measuring flow, not a, a volume. Um, and uh, those are kind of simple devices. You'll see asthmatics might have them, and they just blow in as hard as they can, and it gives them an idea of whether their asthma is flaring or not. So they might tell you, my peak flows have been low. But the incentive spirometer is that thing where you kind of, it's called spirometer, but it's more of just like a, a deep breathing device to help them practice deep breaths. And most, for, for home, patients at home, like, um, you know, some of my patients are like, oh, I'm doing my incentive spirometer. I'm like, really? I would rather you just w go and walk outside. <laughs> I mean, rather than doing your incentive spirometer. Um, another device you might see is a pickle or a flutter valve. Have you guys seen those? Um, we use those a lot, uh, particularly in bronchiectatics. They look like little green pickles. And the idea behind that is someone's blowing into this valve. It's like a, uh, that sort of catches and releases. And so and it makes like a noise, basically. It's kind of like you could do the same thing by blowing into a trumpet or taking a straw and putting it in some water and just blowing. And what happens is you get pressure, and then it's enough of a pressure to overcome the water column, and then a bu bubble of air comes out, right? And so those things, those pickles, uh, what they do, people, patients call them pickles. They're called uh, flutter valves, right? What they do is they, they cause a, a column of, uh, of, of uh, um, differential air pressure that gets transmitted all the way down to the lungs. And if, if patients have specifically a disease called bronchiectasis, where they, have, uh, they lose a lot of the normal cilia in their lung that helps you bring out stuff, they can't clear their lungs very well. So that we, we, we have them use this device that causes their lungs to shake a little bit to, to get things out of their lungs. Um, they, they do have, uh, um, but they do have something called a picometer, uh, which isn't honestly not that common. Uh, but young as some young asthmatics have it, and that does measure an FEV1, but it's kind of a digital device. It measures peak flow and an FEV1. Um, peak flow meters can be very effort dependent, so I don't really always trust their data, um, and so I don't 
Um, I don't often give them to my patients or recommend they have them. But some patients, the patients that I do give peak flow meters to is uh, some, some asthmatics, uh, they get sick very quickly and they don't realize, they don't, they're, they're, for some reason their body doesn't give them the signals when they're sick and they just sort of tank quickly. And uh, those patients, I give them peak flow meters because uh, like someone who's been intubated before and they, got, they just like were like, man, I got sick fast. Like my asthma came off so fast. I'm like, well, it probably took a couple of days. You just didn't recognize it. So I give them peak flow meters and I have them write down their number every day. And if their number kind of comes down, I had to ask them to call me. Um, so, so, they're, they're, so I guess yes and no. It kind of depends on which device you're talking about. But um, your incentive parameter is exactly what I was talking about. Yeah, the incentive parameter is, is something that uh, patients ask me about and I'm like, hey, just walk. <laughs> like, get out of bed and walk. Um, so, so what causes this? So, I, I'm honestly, I'm convinced that that almost like it almost it's almost all hereditary, but we just don't know the genetics about it. Um, the reason I say that is because hereditary plus an environmental insult. Because a lot of I, I see so many people that have that so many married couples that smoke, and like one guy's got horrible COPD, but the wife's like totally fine, or the the, the woman has it, and the the husband's totally fine. I mean, I mean uh, you can smoke a ton and never get COPD. Um, and so I think there must be genes. The, one, the only gene that we really know, um, uh, know well about is a disease called alpha-1, antitrypsin disorder, uh, where, um, uh, do you guys know anything about that? No. It's not super important other, other than um, from a clinical standpoint, they tend to have more emphysema on the bottoms of their lungs and it tends to be COPD in younger people. So people get it in their 40s rather than in their 60s or 70s. Uh, and they almost all still has some smoking history, even the alpha-1 patients, but not always. Um, in the United States, smoking is the number one cause of this, but around the world, um, uh, biofuels, especially like in women that are cooking at home all the time, uh, can cause this too. Um, yeah, heat, house heating up here, actually. Yeah, sorry, what were you going to say? Uh, have you seen a lot of... Uh Vape-related cases, or now that marijuana is legal, marijuana-related cases. Yes, that's a really good question. Um, uh, I um, <laughs> yeah. So, so um, I'm gonna talk about biofuels really quick out here, uh, and then I'll, I'll answer that because uh, that's actually like a really tough question to answer. I think. Um, uh, uh, first of all, about um, the, in, the environmental biofuels. There's a lot of patients I, uh, that I've seen out here that haven't smoked but get COPD. And so one of the, in addition to smoking, I, I actually also ask them how they heat their home. Because a lot of people out here heat their home with wood-burning stoves, and I'm convinced. I never saw that before I came out here. I think that people, especially people live in like Glacier and Maple Falls, their, their houses are just uh, not ventilated properly, and they're getting COPD from wood-burning stoves. Um, so vaping and marijuana smoking. So... Um, Vaping, and I don't know too much about vaping uh, itself other than this, uh, this illness that occurred more recently. I think, um, well, I'm going to step back one for, step further. So I, I, when I see patients in clinic, I always ask them, hey, do you smoke? They say no. And then I ask them if they use drugs, and they say no. They look at me like I'm crazy. And then and near the end of the visit, do you think they say, hey, do you think uh, I do smoke marijuana? Do you think that might happen? I was like, I asked you if you smoke. And I, so now it's like a separate category in the state of Washington since it's been legalized. People don't really consider it a drug, and they don't consider it smoking because smoking, they think tobacco. So I have to ask directly, 
You know, that's my first point about that. You have to ask them directly. Um, and I've just gotten used to doing that, um, and patients don't seem to really care. It's just like asking them if they drink at this point. Um, the next thing I'd say about that is when we've looked at uh, whether uh, smoking causes COPD, that's very controversial. Uh, I think a lot of pulmonologists think uh, probably not, and we don't really know why. Smoking marijuana? Smoking marijuana. Yeah, because, but in studies that have been done looking at people who've smoked uh, marijuana, the pro I, I think, I think uh, it's, here's the thing, and it's, this is, uh, the, when, you, when they smoke, they're inhala inhaling marijuana, they're, they're inhaling similar toxins, right? Uh, that they're inhaling with, with tobacco smoke. I don't think that that's, um, that's much different. It's just that uh, it's more about, um, I think, uh, amount, right? So, like, uh, you know, my patients that smoke marijuana, I don't know any of them that are smoking 20 marijuana cigarettes a day. Um, there might be some, but I think those people uh, have, you know, gosh, I, actually, you know, I, I don't know anyone who smokes more than maybe two or three, right? You know, and so in order to get COPD, the patients are getting COPD, there's, unless they have really bad genetics. If they have bad genetics, that's different, right? But the people who are getting COPD in general, they're smoking 20 to 30 pack years of cigarettes before they see me, right? So that means they're smoking a pack a day for 20 to 30 years. And no, one's, no one smokes like, you know, that much marijuana. At least I, I haven't met anyone that smokes that much. So I'm convinced the reason we don't really see it as much with marijuana smokers is there's just not as much. I'm not saying it's not a risk factor. I'm saying it's just unusual, right? Um, in terms of cancer and marijuana smoke, it's very controversial. There are some studies that show an association with cancer and marijuana smoke, and some studies that don't. People who are like, you know, like, oh, it's okay for you, are <laughs> like, hey, uh, there, there must be some anti-inflammatory effect because that's it, counteracting the benzenes, the, the carcinogens and smoking, because there are carcinogens. You get, you get these benzene compounds when you smoke uh, marijuana as well as tobacco. They're not that different. Um, they're thinking there must be some like sort of uh, good aspects of it too. Most of the studies that have shown um, an association with marijuana smoking and cancer, kind of North African studies where they, typically the culture's a little bit different. They smoke these like marijuana cigarettes that have tobacco mixed with marijuana. So it's really tough to, to know exactly what to make. But um, I, uh, and, and honestly, every sort of thinking about my personal experience, every sort of marijuana smoker I've had that's gotten, for example, lung cancer, they also smoke cigarettes. So, I mean, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, but I would say, like, it's unusual for marijuana smoking alone to cause COPD. Vaping is a different issue, though, right? That vaping illness, I haven't seen. Um, and I, I, think, um, I think part of it is um, uh, because uh, my understanding of this vaping illness was that it occurred mostly in people who were smoking marijuana that had uh, vitamin E acetate in it that was being sort of like sold outside of sort of the, the state sponsored, the state sort of not sponsored, but state sort of regulated, uh, you know, shops. Like people were buying this sort of like, you know, from a friend or from, you know, rather than, and, and I think that these sort of unregulated uh, um, um, uh, oils were, were mixed with a, a filler, basically. Uh, I think that's what was going on. Because, I mean, the, the cases kind of, there have really been very few of them now. And, you know, since they sort of like, uh, sort of like uh, discovered that. And, and the, the samples, the Lavard samples 
from people who had this disease, they almost always had this really sticky substance, vitamin E acetate in them. So I think that there probably is something to that. And in general, um, I am one who, uh, you know, that it's very controversial, uh, again. But um, I think, uh, you know, in terms of vaping and, and tobacco too, right? So, um, you know, our country decided not to regulate tobacco vaping very much. And, um, and sort of companies took advantage of this and have, like, marketed it to kids. And I, I think uh, what they did in some countries like the UK where they regulated it a lot and used, uh, uh, um, you know, nicotine vaping as, like, a, a, a way to get people to quit tobacco, I don't think that was necessarily a bad thing, you know. I think there's some data that shows that's, that's effective. Then the problem is then you have to still, you still want to eventually try to get them off the vaping, and that's, that's the tricky part. You, you may be creating another problem. We don't really know yet what, what the effect, it, it, you know, it took a long time, right, before they figured out the effect, the long-term effect of smoking cigarettes on the lungs, right? Uh, and part of the trick is not everyone that smokes gets lung cancer, but almost everyone who has lung cancer, you know, you know, now maybe 80% of the people who get lung cancer have smoked, right? So it's not like a, if you smoke, you'll get it. So it's really tough to prove. Uh, and it takes a long time, right? right? You have to smoke for a long time. So, you know, uh, I don't think we're going to know the answer about vaping and what it, long-term damage it causes for a long time. Um, but uh, in the short term, um, I think it's a good way. It's a, it could be potentially th thought of as a tool to get people to quit. And I don't worry about... I'm not as worried about the this sort of that vaping uh, induced lung disease. I think is something we're not. I'm, I'm hoping we're not going to see too much more of. Yeah. Take a short break. Oh, perfect. Yep. Okay. That's great. I didn't include a a, a COVID case because I don't. You know, honestly, I think that the most important thing from your perspective, for your guys' perspective, is, is just to make sure you guys are protected from it. Yep. Well, they're good questions, but yeah, really good questions. Yeah. So, okay, uh, so this is really an important slide for you guys, actually. Um, no, this is for like just you guys to know, and uh, I think this is good because uh, this is particularly for for COPD. Um, but I think that this is important because this is the type type of decision that you guys have to make sometimes. Is like, is this someone who I have to bring to the hospital, or someone who is going to be okay and they can call you know Jaffer and see him in clinic in a day, or you know talk talk it over, and, and so like. Who do, you t who do you bring in, right? So, so I I'd bring in, you know, this guy says, hey, I see Jaffer, and I tried my antibiotics and prednisone, and I'm still getting worse. That's someone you ought to probably bring in, right? Because they're not responding to outpatient therapy. Um, if they have edema, if normally they're not on any oxygen, and now you measure their SATs and they're in the 80s or even 70s, you know, that's probably, that's a, that's a significant deterioration from baseline, right? So that's another reason to bring someone in, new hypoxia. And there might be other stuff going on. So COPD doesn't always make someone that hypoxic. Um, you know, so there might be a pneumonia, there might be heart failure, something else going on. So that's where edema comes on. And altered mental status, like, I mean, if, if you have bad lung disease enough that it's causing altered mentation, that's a good reason to bring someone in. Um, so I consider non-invasive non ventilation uh, when there's increased work of breathing. But actually, you know, in the, in the hospital, I can I can I consider using it when someone's comatose too. And that, you know, that's that's a judgment decision. And and if you're going to use it in in, in the field, uh, uh, or on the hospital ward, so sometimes they'll start it in the hospital ward and they'll try to like turn someone around with it. 
before sending them to the ICU, for example. And I tell the, I tell the RTs and the hospitalists, uh, if you're going to do that, don't do it for more than half an hour or an hour. If they're not turning around in half an hour or an hour, if they don't start waking up, just tube them, right? Because, uh, you know, you know the, the, if they're not responding, then they may code. You know, they might just need to be tubed. So don't, you know, if you're going to try it, don't try it for too long. Like, say, hey, I'm going to try it for half an hour, <laughs> reassess them. If it's not working, we're going to tube them. That makes sense? And so for us, I would say if someone is yeah. decreased in level of consciousness yep. from the beginning, yeah. and we think, oh, they're still, they're still attempting to talk to us a little bit, but they can, they're a little bit decreased, they can't answer every question, we might try just a brief trial of yeah. half. But our threshold is a lot less than a half an hour because of our transport time right. and the act of moving them yep. to the journey can sometimes put people over the edge yep. and things like that. So we might be in that, okay, we're going to give a brief trial here because this person seems yeah. bad and a little bit altered. And then if it doesn't work within just a few, five, six minutes, then yep. we're likely going to be deciding yeah. you know, to get our IV, to get them sedated, to then possibly get ready to intubate Yeah. point. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, I think of CPAP as a trial, you know, um, and, uh, and, yeah. I don't know, this is something that Zach brought up earlier, because uh, I've, I've been told the same thing as with a lot of these chronic respiratory illnesses, we want to be careful intubating them because of that, that reliance on the ventilator, that, that their, um, their recovery is usually... It might be, yeah, but you know. But you haven't seen that as much. Well, you know, you don't. The, the thing is, you like so. If someone wasn't on a ventilator and they, they the the ventilator doesn't make them dependent, right? It, you know, it's it's their lung disease that's getting worse, and you know you're not going to change that in the field. Um, if their if their lung disease is bad enough, they need to get to do what you need to do. I mean, what 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 matters more is that you've sort of like if you you've looked for what whether they want it or not. Because yes, the recovery is hard for them. And so some patients have been through that before or seen someone else do that. They're like, I don't want to go through that recovery period, right? So, so, that, so it does matter that you've kind of like established that. But if they want everything done, you know, as far as you know, as far as, you know, then, then you do what you need to do. Don't worry. Right yeah, because a lot of times they will, they will improve. It's just that, that, that recovery is a little bit uh, rocky, right? And if they didn't want that rocky recovery, then you know, that's up to them. But a lot of people are okay with it, or have never done it before. They, they, they would like to try, you know. And there's some. Sometimes there's reversible things. Like in the field, we don't always know. They also have some congestive heart failure, some edema. We can diarrhea, some pneumonia that we can treat, and they'll get a little bit better in a couple of days, and then we'll be able to get them off. But yeah, um, let's keep going. Uh, so here. So what drugs do we have right in the field? So you guys have some prednisone, right? You guys don't have antibiotics probably, right? Um, but you guys have prednisone, and if someone's really wheezy, like that can be a really good tool to start that early, because that takes a long time to work, right? So when you guys start that early, that's actually quite helpful. And then we have uh, uh, short-acting bronchodilators. Um, now, um, yeah, I mean, if, if they're, this has more importance when, when someone's in the hospital. I, I tell the, the, the doctors and the nurses to stop the Spireva if you're giving them Duoneb. You guys, your nebs are albuterol, right? Yeah. yeah, perfect. So you don't have to worry about this at all. And you guys probably will never see, you guys don't give epitropium at all, right? 
So I should have taken this slide out because you guys will never see this. Oxygen and then non-invasive ventilator therapy, which I, so, so this is anascoria, right? So, uh, and this happens, uh, in fact, I had one of my partners send someone down for a CAT scan for this in the middle of the night once, and I was like, what were you doing? Their mental status was totally normal, they were moving everything, but their eyes looked like this, so they got a CAT scan. But this happened right after a nebulizer therapy. And so what happened, so they got ipratropium. So, you know, how to, how to, you know ipratropium can do this because it, it causes eye dilation, right? Um, so this guy, this guy, I think he just had this naturally, uh, David Bowie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> so but, uh, I actually have this from... Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. From a concussion as well. Wow. Yeah, can do this too. Um, it, it's a, um, it, it's a energy agent, so, so it can cause your eyes to dilate. Um, yeah. It, um... So if you get this after someone, you, you guys are giving albuterol only nebs, so your nebs shouldn't cause this. But in the hospital, we see it sometimes because we give ipratropium with albuterol in our nebs, so we see it sometimes. It's just the mask; it leaks, and it makes one of the, sometimes one of their eyes can get dilated. Um, so other side effects of therapy. So the anticholinergics uh, can cause <laughs> some problems. So uh, you know. If you're giving someone a lot of some of the COPD exacerbations, sometimes they have to put Foley's in because you're going to get bladder distension if you give them so much anticholinergic. So tachycardia happens more with albuterol. Um, uh, you know, uh, hypokalemia, if you're giving someone continuous albuterol NEBS, one of the ways we treat high potassiums, remember, is we give, if you have someone with hyperkalemia, you're worried about it because you, you give a continuous albuterol NEB, right? Now this guy doesn't have high potassium and you've given him a continuous albuterol numb, so you can make his potassium really tank. Um, so jitteriness, you can try some benzos, you know. Psychosis usually happens because of steroids. So we have people, and you won't see this, but sometimes, unless like I gave someone steroids, but in the hospital sometimes you give people really lots of steroids and they get uh, um, psychotic. Uh, and then hyperglycemia, and that usually happens more at night. What else do we got here? So oxygen, right? So you guys have heard this, right? So is it good or is it bad, right? Uh, you want to give just enough, right? So why is that? So the good, you know, it helps with pulmonary hypertension, helps with end organ damage, but, uh, you know, so, so the lungs are super smart, right? One of the things the lungs do is when, when, I'm, when I have a patient with lung disease and they're hypoxic uh, or their lungs are hypoxic, Say they have a pneumonia, right? What happens is the, if, so, so the lungs are different physiologically than every other organ in the body in terms of vasodilation. If you have a, a, a part of your finger that has low oxygen levels, right? What are your, your body basically what it does is it vasodilates so you get more oxygen, more blood to that part of your finger, right? The lungs do the opposite. If you have a pneumonia and there's no oxygen in this part of your lung, your lungs basically vasoconstrict to that part of the lung, and they send more oxygen to the rest of your lung, the healthy lung, right? And so you can actually uh, make VQ mismatch worse, and, and by doing, that's actually the mechanism that you increase CO2 retention uh, when you, because um, then you start sending blood to poorly ventilated, when you give someone a ton of oxygen, and they have a pneumonia or something, you can actually increase their, their CO2 uh, by uh, impairing their ability uh, to match perfusion and ventilation, because the body's really good at doing that. Um, 
So, uh, so you, you know, that, that's the bad thing about it. Um, I, and I also want to say a caveat, usually COPD itself, like just wheezing, doesn't always, it does sometimes and it's really bad and they're not moving any air, right? Uh, those patients will have high CO2 as well though. So uh, in of itself, if their CO2 is normal, COPD doesn't always make them require like a ton of oxygen, right? Something else, what I'm trying to say is if you think someone is requiring a ton of oxygen, there might be something else going on, a PE, heart failure, pneumonia, in addition to their COPD. Good. And my goal of saturation isn't 100%. It's 89 to 93, right, for, for this reason. Yep. Our protocols, our goal saturation is 92 to 95. That's fine, too. Just not 100%. You just want, you, you want it. There's a couple different reasons for that, um, and, and that's okay in the field. And I, and I see it's a little different because it's a controlled setting, right? Uh, the, re the reason, and, and you want to err on the side of giving a little bit more than a little bit less, and, the, and I see you at this point, I, I kind of know what's going on, things are more stable, and I'm okay with them getting 89 to 93. So that's fine, um, just don't give them 100. And the other reason is, is when you're giving someone 100%, you really don't know whether they're getting better or worse. You're just giving them so much oxygen that you don't know whether any of your therapies are working, right? Because they're going to be 100%, regardless of whether they, you know, they need it or they don't, right? And when you keep them 92 to 95, there's going to be, they're going to move around a lot more, and you'll get an idea of things that, if your things you're doing are working or not. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, but in general, actually, honestly, for most diseases, uh, you don't need to be 100%, you know, um, and you can cause more problems than, you know, sometimes by making, by over-oxygenating people. Um, so, um, so pH and PCO2 are most important in COPD, and you can actually get most of that information from a venous blood gas. So uh, this is like, I want to talk about arterial blood gases in general, not because you guys will see a lot, but it might come up from time to time. And what I want you guys to be able to differentiate in arterial blood gas is whether it's an acute problem or a chronic problem, because you'll respond to it differently, right? Um, you guys don't, do you guys ever see these, Rob, ABGs? Only if we hear about it in the hospital. Yeah, right. So you might hear, hey, their blood gas is a, exactly. So just so you know what we're talking about, an acute process versus a chronic process. When someone has, so people buffer their acid with bicarbonate. And so people who've had chronic respiratory acidosis, they have more bicarbonate to buffer the acid. So when, you, when, they, when they don't breathe as well and their PCO2 is high, if it's been high for a while, they're going to buffer it better. Right, so their pH won't drop as much. Does that make sense? That's all. That's all that's going on. So we can tell based on how much their pH is dropping, based on the increase in the CO2. If it's dropping a lot, then it's would it be more acute or more chronic if it's dropping a ton? Yeah, more acute. And if it drops not as much, we're like, hey, that's a chronic process. That's how I want you to. That's probably that's probably what you guys should know about that. Yeah, don't don't worry too much about the math, is because. Even I have to look up the math sometimes. So don't worry about the numbers. But the idea is that basically, like, if their pH is nearly normal, we're going to be like, hey, it's chronic. And this is just a little bit of, you know, math to kind of go through. So acute, if his PCO2 was 80, it's going to be closer to a pH of 7, right? But if it's chronic, his pH might be closer to 7.3. Does that make sense? Normal pH is... 7.4, yeah. Yeah, great, perfect. Yeah, you guys got that. So don't worry too much about this stuff. This is good, so like this is how I think about um, when not to use BiPAP. It's almost in everyone. I, get, I use it, so when would you not use it? And this is like, you know, you, you guys would be really careful about it, and I understand why if someone's comatose, because you guys, you know, don't want to, 
it's just really risky. Your, your transport situation is way more risky than me having someone that I can kind of like see and there's a nurse watching them and they're not really moving around. And I give them a little bit more time, right? So I typically do use non-invasive ventilation for comatose people, but what other, what would be like an absolutely contraindication? Vomiting. Vomiting, yeah. I mean, the other one that you have to be really uh, careful about, um, honestly, um, Coughing up blood, and you know, someone who's non-cooperative, like in the ICU, like if you have someone who's non-cooperative, uh, we almost never, because of uh, just because of the, the liability and also the danger involved, if you have to sedate someone and the point that you have to put them in restraints uh, with a BiPAP mask on, for you guys, you could probably get away with that, but in the hospital, when we're like not always watching them all the time. If they vomit and they can't get that mask off because you've tied them on, you've like, I mean, I mean they're going to be in big trouble. So we almost never tie people down in order to get them to comply with a BiPAP mask. If their delirium or agitation is that bad, we just intubate them oftentimes um, and don't think about it. just because it's, it's really too dangerous to do, to, to do BiPAP with a mask like this where someone can't pull it out off if they have a problem. Um, but yeah, GI bleeders... And part of this is like, you know, if you've ever intubated someone who's having a GI bleed or vomiting or having hemoptysis, it's so freaking hard. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I like DL or being comfortable with DL because it's a little bit easier to suction and then you can just keep looking rather than having to pull out and clean your thing. But people that I've seen the RTs that are really slick with fiber optic intubation and they're just really, they're really prepared, right? That's a matter of being prepared. So you know your tool might get dirty. You have to pull it out and clean it really quickly, right? That's all it is. Um, so good. Any questions about this? Um, good. So yeah, uh, this is good. Yeah, so like just in terms of like, you know, your, your question about like sort of getting them off the ventilator. So this is CPR. And, and I wait a couple times before talking to my patients about this. But I, I really present them with this information. Like, do you really want me to do CPR on you if you have bad COPD? Because if, if your COPD is bad enough, this isn't everyone with COPD. But I'm saying if your lung disease is bad enough to cause heart your heart to stop, right? You know, and your lung disease is still going to be that bad, right? Even after you revive your heart, right? So your chance of surviving to hospital discharge is only 15% and 2% in 12 months, you know? So if you, if you had a cardiac arrest, this is an intubation, but cardiac arrest, their prognosis is really bad. So I tell people this, but after I get to know them a little bit. Um, well, because they're just going to like, they're going to be like, I came here for you to help me and you're just trying to prepare me for death. But, but eventually, I, I kind of get into that stuff with them, right? But you have to kind of build trust first. Uh, you know, they have palliative care in the hospital, and Eddie Gu told me the reason they have palliative care in the hospital is because primary care doctors don't see their patients anymore when they get admitted. The hospitalists do, right? So the hospitalists, are the first time they're meeting them, right, they don't have this relationship with them. So it's really hard to talk about all these things when you're meeting someone for the first time. So it created a whole new field of medicine called palliative care. And he thinks that came because, because of hospitalist medicine. I think there is something to that. Honestly, it takes a couple of times before you meet someone before, unless you want to spend hours with them, which is what the palliative care service does. Um, so then this is like your intubation question, right? So this is sort of like what, what you should be thinking in the back of your head. Like someone has bad enough respiratory failure that they require intubation, right? Um, so their survival in 12 months is about 50%. You know, the people that survive 
half of them are going to be in a nursing home, and half of them might be independent like they are now. So, so like, you know, that, you know, a lot of people are okay with that. And they say, hey, if you get tubes, there's a 25% chance a year from now you'll be just like you are now. They're willing to take that chance. But some people are like, no, I've been through that already. You're seeing someone like go through like what it takes, and they don't want to do it. So anyway, it's a very high-risk population. And the reason I bring this up because it's, A, like thinking of goals of care, but B, also just um, understanding that if someone's been intubated before, and it's within the last year, they're pretty high risk for needing to happen again, you know? Um, it's just a, it's a risk factor, including having seen me in clinic. <laughs> so um, the other thing I wanted to put out, uh, uh, point out is also, it's, it's not just the active, the active intubation didn't make them high risk. It's the fact that they have hypoventilation. So the people that have hypoventilation, whether you intubate them or not, a year from now, they're gonna have a rocky road. I mean, they, 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 they fall into that same category. It's not much different. Their chance of being, if you have hypercapnic respiratory failure and you're walking around with this, your chance of being alive in a year is about 50%. And, and that, that, you know, the intubation doesn't make that higher or lower. Yeah, right, well, sometimes. But, but, but I don't have very many patients with hyper, hypercapnic respiratory failure happens not to everyone who has COPD. Sometimes have people have really bad diseases and it just doesn't happen, yeah. But, but yeah, the patients that have that, Either they get a transplant or they die. Yeah, that's true. Do you have any transplantations? Yeah, one. So they, they, yeah, one. Not very many though. Yeah. Um, lung transplant. The problem with lung transplant, it's very different than heart transplant or kidney transplant. It, it, it's, it's not uh, the average time. Uh, Fifty, like, so f six years after lung transplant, half the patients who had it are dead. Um, and part of that's because the lungs just really subject, you, you take someone who has lungs and, and you put new lungs in them, and then those new lungs, now you're having to put them on immunosuppression, so they're at higher risk for getting infections. And the lung has this, this thing called bronchiolitis or bloodoran syndrome. We don't totally understand, but we think it's a type of chronic rejection that people get in their lungs that happens over, over time. But I've almost never seen like a lung transplant last more than like 10 years, but I've seen like one or two patients that have had one for like 13 years, but they're always, they're, they're disease that they had that, that, that brought them into that situation, they, they, they tend to develop a very similar disease at that, that point down the road. This is something that you should, you should know. So this is the guy who got intubated. I usually see this on intubated patients, but this is like a capnography, right? So what's the capnography look like in a COPD patient? This guy or that guy? Yeah, right, right, awesome, yep. So, so it's taking a long time. They're exhaling slowly, right, so that air is coming out slowly. So it takes a long time to reach equilibrium, right? This guy reaches equilibrium right away. This is what heart failure would look like. That's what COPD looks like, or asthma. Um, I'm not gonna go over any of this stuff because it is not that relevant to you guys at all. Um, this is important though, maybe, do you, you guys uh, ever deal with auto peep? Do you guys ever? You guys have people on ventilators sometimes, right? You intubate someone with CO. Yeah. 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 You and you guys will put someone on a ventilator, right? And we have and an auto vent that, that ventilates at a very standard rate with volumes that we set and a, and a pressure mm -hmm. threshold that we're able to dial up. Mm -hmm. So you intubate a guy with COPD, mm -hmm. and they get hypotensive, right? So you should really be concerned about auto peep in that situation. So what happens, what's happening, right, is they're, they're getting more and more, more and more, more and more, more and more air. They're overfilling and they're not exhaling completely, right? 
So basically that pressure is building up in their lungs and it's pushing on their heart and it's bringing their blood pressure down, right? You can give them fluid, but really you have to adjust your ventilator. Really, you, Sedation really helps a lot because when people are, have COPD, they're breathing really fast. So sedating can help. But what, uh, what, what's the one thing on here you would not want to do? Uh, well, increased PEEP can actually help a little bit. Because think about this. Remember that balloon, right? So if you, when you're doing my, my, when you increase PEEP, you're making that balloon more distended, right? And so you get more recoil. Remember, the ventilator only helps with air in. Air out is the patient, right? So when you increase PEEP, what you're doing is you're stretching their balloon out more. So it actually helps them get air out more. Does that make sense? It sounds counterintuitive that someone's got auto PEEP, and I'm increasing their peep, but it can actually help them get air out more easily. And it sounds so crazy, but it, it works. Not to believe me. Increasing tidal volume is the thing that, that you really would not want to do, right? If someone's, if someone's hypotensive, you want to be, be careful about their tidal volume. Um, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes you, can, sometimes you can. Yeah, just decrease it. Or, hey, or just uh, um, sedate them more. Or, and, and when you decrease their tidal volume, you just have to accept a little bit of acidosis sometimes, you know? And that's okay. Um, it's better than shock. Shock is bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the one thing that, uh, that I want to do is, you know, is not increase the tidal volume. All the other things may help, you know? Including increasing the PEEP, uh, which is totally counterintuitive, but it actually helps. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of went over this a lot. Uh, exhalation's passive. Even on the ventilator, increasing PEEP makes that balloon bigger and helps their passive recoil work better, right? Um, so think of like a balloon versus their, their lungs are now like a beach ball. Um, it helps more with the COPDers than the asthmatics because the asthmatics tend to have lungs that are a little bit more like a balloon, but a lot of COPDers, that elasticity is lost. Right? So PEEP can be more helpful sometimes with people with COPD. So tall, skinny guys, you can't hear breath sounds on one side. Sounds like this guy is starting to look like he's shocky. What are you guys thinking? Yes, excellent, excellent, very good. I don't know, but I think, I think there's definitely an association with smoking with this too, absolutely. I, I, don't, I don't, actually, honestly, I don't, I don't really know the answer for that. That's a good question. <laughs> so again, uh, listen again, ultrasound, evaluate by percussion or fremitus. So we kind of had the same, same one before, right? So this is like uh, percussion, right? Ultra, ultrasound, I wish. And you guys will, I think you guys will see this in your careers. So what you look for in ultrasound, now I don't see fluid, but see this pleural line? When you get a pneumothorax, you get no more movement of that pleural line. Normally, it moves as they breathe. If you have a pneumo, it's, you don't see that moving at all. And that can be like a dead giveaway that you have a pneumo. Treatment, so treatment, lots of oxygen, right? In, the, in like, in like the, the short term, if someone's relatively stable with a pneumo, I can give them lots of oxygen. I don't have to put a chest tube in. And the rationale for that we can talk about. If you guys want to know like why you give lots of oxygen for... Anemo, why does that help? It's, 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 so in it, I wouldn't use a high flow or a CPAP, right? I would just use like a face mask and give them lots of oxygen. The, the, the way that works for small pneumos, right? And this is not someone who's in shock. Someone who's in shock, you're going to put a tube in, right? 
someone who's not in shock and just has a little pneumo and it hurts, lots of oxygen can help because, so they're, they're leaking air into the pleural space, right? Air is mostly nitrogen, right? Now if you have them breathe in 100% oxygen, their lung now has 100% oxygen, right, in it. And their pleural space has 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen, right? So just the way the gas is diffused, right? So that, 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 that nitrogen uh, is going to, like, dissipate, and the oxygen's kind of going back, so the pneumo's going to get a little bit smaller. Does that make sense? A little bit. So it's, it's a, you're looking for, to create a gradient between the oxygen and nitrogen in their pleural space and their lung, and so that's why you give them 100% oxygen. It can help a little bit, but not for really sick people. You know, for really sick people, you know, now, now they get tracheal deviation, right? Now you're thinking really tension. So what do you do for those people? You've got more than just oxygen. Now you've got to, like, put a tube in, right? And you guys have darts to do that, right? Perfect. That'll save, that'll save someone's life. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're not... You know, yeah, I mean, if someone's in shock, right, and you do that, like, that's totally the right thing to do, you know? You guys don't have an x-ray, you don't have an ultrasound, you guys got to act on, on the information you guys have, right? But I can imagine that's really nerve-wracking, and I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. <laughs> Let's just say that. Dr. Jeffrey, if you had to choose an anterior versus lateral position for just a simple dart, what would you choose? Well, you know, honestly... Um, I haven't ever come across that because I just put tubes in um, so at the bedside. Lateral. So mine are always lateral. Yeah. But uh, I've always heard to put them in anteriorly for, for darts. I mean, but I don't know if there's Our like... Training a, allows for either position. Yeah. But yeah. Most, of, most people tend to be more comfortable with second and costal space up yeah. front yeah. because it seems more accessible during the yep. or when we're working on uh -huh. someone that just died of a, yeah. you know, like in a motor vehicle accident, blood trauma, mm -hmm. and we're trying to do something that as a last ditch effort, uh -huh. we tend to go Yep. The other thing that, you know, I always do when I put in pneumo, uh, put in uh, anything for a pneumothorax, uh, is I try to uh, try to avoid the lung, right? And so air, the pneumothorax is going to go up, right, if you have someone upright. So I have them, actually, I put in a chest tube, and usually for a pneumothorax, I have them up a little bit, like 30 degrees. When I'm putting it in, that, then, so, so if they're lying flat, their air is all going to be over here, Right? If they're upright a little bit, that, that pneumo pocket's going to come up here. And so if you're going to do it anteriorly, have them up at 30 degrees, and then you'll be able to, you know, basically what, yeah, so, so, it's, so have them a little bit upright, use gravity to help, help you out in that situation. But uh, darts I've mostly seen put in up here, but I almost, in the, you know, what I do is I just put in chest tubes, yeah. right, right, you know, but that's not, yeah. So you guys can do either or, huh? Yeah, as far as position. I'd get really, you know, I'd get really nervous about poking people. You know, with Spencer Hines here, right on the left side of Numo, like right over here, it made me get a little bit nervous. But that's why you want to go plenty high. Um, so what's this one? I think this might be the last case. We're like, all right. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, unilateral edema. Again, uh, you know, what was other key? Breast cancer, right? So cancer patients, immobility cancer, prior DVT, and then, you know, the tachycardia, right? Their lungs are clear. They don't have, they're, they're tachycardic and they're hypoxic, but their lungs are clear, right? They're not, they're not crackly. It's not one of Spencer's patients. They're not wheezy. Something else is going on, right? Uh, so that should be like, and then they have delayed cap refill, which you can get with PEs. Uh, so this is probably more than just a DVT, right? Because they're, uh, they've, they've got, and maybe even shocky, the delayed cap refill, right? 
Um, so one thing I want you to know about this, and you guys will hear all about it in association with B. So what is this? What's this a marker of? So, Q3, Q3, right? But, but, but the point I wanted to make is this happens with um, every, all, all these patients. COPD patient might have it. You might have it with any type of right heart strain, really. It's not super specific for a PE, but, but you'll always hear this associated with PE. <laughs> but uh, um, you'll see it more often in patients who don't have PEs. So, like, uh, my point here, you know, I'm like, is this specific for any of these? Not really. You'll, you'll, you could potentially see it in any of these diseases. Um, I think, uh, oh, hi. What did I do here? Yeah, let me try again. I think that's honestly, that's uh, actually all the stuff I got. There's one other thing. Yeah, that's actually perfect. And then it's just some pictures of my kids is last. You want to see my kids? Yeah, so none of the above. I'd say, yeah, none of the above is what I would say. It's not specific. It can happen in any of those. You know, like, uh, because they, they all cause right heart strain. That's a, it's a marker for right heart strain. So any lung process... Uh, so remember I said low oxygen levels in the lung cause vasoconstriction. Uh, it's very different than the rest of the body, right? So, and the reason to that is to, to allow for uh, V to match Q. You want the lungs want to limit VQ mismatch, right? Because that causes more hypoxia. And so, when you have a lung problem, now that the right heart has to work past that hypoxia, right? The vasoconstriction, and it's used to working a low, through a low, low resistance circuit. So, right heart's kind of a piddly organ, right? It's not very strong. And so now when you make it work against a high pressure because of vasoconstriction, it struggles, you know, and, and almost any lung disease can cause that. Any, any lung disease that causes hypoxia really can make that right heart struggle. Um, you don't see it as much in some lung diseases because the right heart can like uh, sort of um, adjust to it. But yeah, it's, it's a marker of right heart strain, S1, Q3, T3, more than just a pulmonary embolism. Yep. Really good. They could, yeah. Yep, they could. Yeah, they could. They could. They could look like that just normally too, if their right heart's kind of chronically strained. Would you say yeah? yeah. Yep. Very yep. But you'll hear about it, and you might see it on test. Oh yeah. And we heard about it specifically for PE. Yeah, it's a uh, yeah. P is a tricky diagnosis, but, you know, yeah, it's just not that helpful. Any other questions? Yeah. Ventilation perfusion mismatch. Yeah, so, so like, the lungs are really, they want to ventilate, they, they want to perfuse places of the lungs that are ventilated well. And they want to, because see, at the end of the day, right, so all the blood goes through your lungs, all that blood then mixes in the left heart, right? And if you have parts of your lungs that have gone through areas, perfused areas that aren't ventilated well, then you'll have uh, unoxygenated blood mixing with oxygenated blood. And no matter how much oxygen I give you, I won't be able to fix that problem. Uh, so the lungs are really good naturally. They're natural, naturally really good 
at matching ventilation and perfusion. And then when we start doing things like giving people oxygen, we can cause more mismatch sometimes. Um, by taking that sort of normal uh, like physiologic response away. Um, gosh. I really think by the time, uh, you know, I, I think in 10 years that you guys will all have ultrasounds in your, and it's part of your armamentarium. I, I can't imagine why not. Dr. Wayne's already talked about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... He'd like to do a study again for free and then get us working with them, but he did that with pulse oxes many years ago and got us pulse oxes before most systems. Oh, cool. So it was pretty that guy's awesome. Idle after that. And then, yeah, maybe now it's going to be ultrasounds. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they. Um... Well, thank you, Doctor. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys.